Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone, welcome back to Warfare. I'm your host James Rogers and in this episode we're talking about the Desert War between 1940 and 1943. To take us through this we have Gershom Gorenberg. He's an expert historian and journalist who writes for the Atlantic, Washington Post, American Prospect and New York Times Magazine. He's the author of an amazing new book, War of Shadows, and he brings us a whole new history of this period of the war. He rewrites pretty much everything that we thought we knew about Rommel's rise and success and his ultimate fall in North Africa. As Gershom explains, there was a secret war going on in the background, which until now has remained hidden, one which involves codebreakers, spies, and a secret struggle to drive the Nazis from the Middle East. Enjoy. Hi Gershom, thanks for coming on to Warfare. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for inviting me. Not a problem at all. Where are you in the world? Where are you speaking to us from? Uh, I'm speaking to you from my home in Jerusalem, Israel. Oh, fantastic. Wow. I think um, this is the first time we've had someone talking to us from Jerusalem. So welcome. This is a first. My pleasure to be the first. (laughs) Brilliant. Now, well, without giving too much away, I want to say that I found the topic of your research absolutely fascinating. It told a whole new story to a part of history that I thought I knew pretty well. It's a part of history that my granddad was involved in. He, he fought in North Africa and we think we know a lot about the desert campaign of 1940 to 1943 but actually there's so much more to it and your work brings this out, brings in the code breakers, the spies and the shadow war. So perhaps we can start there. Take us to the beginning of your story, to the deserts of North Africa. Where do we begin? Well, I'm going to begin at a spot that's not chronologically the beginning of the story, but for me, sets up the story. So let's go to the 1st of July, 1942. And let's say we're in Cairo. We're sitting in a sidewalk cafe in Cairo, a city built to be the Paris of the Middle East. We're surrounded by beautiful Mediterranean department stores and apartment buildings. And if we look west from downtown Cairo, what we're going to see is pillars of smoke rising from British General Headquarters Middle East, from the Royal Air Force Headquarters, from the British Embassy on the Nile, 
from the offices that most people probably don't even realize are there of the secret operation executive, which is in charge of helping resistance movements in Nazi-occupied countries. And the reason that we're seeing those pillars of smoke is that soldiers and clerks are feverishly burning papers, orders, plans, lists, code books, coded messages, because everybody expects that Rommel and his Axis army is about to take the cities of Egypt. Ten days before this, Tobruk, the crucial strategic port in the eastern part of Libya, has uh, fallen to, to, to Rommel's army. An incredible blow, both strategically and symbolically, to Britain. And when I say Britain here, that's a wider concept than we think of today because the British army includes the Australian army, the New Zealand army, uh, South Africans, Poles, Free French. It's really an international brigade really fighting the Italians and Germans of, of Rommel's army. And this entire British army appears to be in a state of complete collapse and retreats over 500 kilometers in the space of 10 days to this place in the desert called El Alamein, which we think of, you know, the name is so famous that we think that there should be something there. In fact, there's a, a whistle stop of a train station and nothing else. El Alamein means two flags, because when the place was built, somebody ran two flags up above the train station. And the assumption is that Rama will just keep going and will soon be in Alexandria and after that in Cairo and after that in Palestine. And Rommel himself is expecting to march across the Middle East to the oil fields of Iraq. And Cairo is in this, this state of, you know, it's it's in the situation of a city about to be occupied. People are crowding into the train station, uh, trying to escape to the south to Sudan or get on the all-night train to Palestine. People are crowding the embassies. People are crowding the banks trying to take their cash out. Everybody knows that Cairo is about to fall. What they don't know is that besides the battle on the battlefield, there has been a battle of minds, of uh, a brain battle going on for quite a while between the intelligence agencies of the Axis and of Britain. Um, <clears throat> and in particular, what they don't know is that two months before that, Bletchley Park, uh, General Communications Headquarters, Britain's hyper-secret signal intelligence agency has discovered that Rommel has some sort of incredible source in Cairo, and that that source is the real reason for his supposed intuition about what the British are about to do and where they are. He doesn't actually have ESP. He's got the best intelligence source that the Axis will have during the entire war. So that is the setting for what goes on in War of Shadows. From there, we can go back to the beginning of the war and see how that situation uh, came into existence. I would love you to keep telling me the story. This goes, this goes against everything that my granddad told me and the people that I've interviewed who were on the battlefield because they're waiting for this giant fight that's going to happen. Of course, it does happen. The Battle of Al Alamein, they're trying to dodge cluster bombs that are buried in the sand. But you're telling me there's a much bigger war going on here. Tell us all about it. I want to stress all of that. Everything that your grandfather told you is correct. The battle on the battlefield is real and horrible and crucial. And the courage of this international force that is the British Eighth Army is absolutely central to what happened next. 
what they don't know and what only a tiny group of people know is that there's phantoms, as it were, on the battlefield with them, the codebreakers who are cracking into German messages and in the process of breaking into German messages, trying to stop whatever this source is that the Germans have. They will never know about those allies. And I'll get to the reason why they're never going to know about that in a little while. But what everybody does know who's on that battlefield is that the Germans are led by this guy, Rommel, who is Erwin Rommel, who is you know, already a legend in his own time is supposedly, you know, the greatest tank commander ever, the greatest desert fighter ever, the desert fox who commands an extraordinary amount of respect from from British generals. It, they know about that, but they can't know about the secret part of the war. I'll take you to another moment that's really critical for this. We'll go back to the very beginning of the war, September 1939. I'll tell you about three things that happened then that help set all of this up. The first is that at the very beginning of the war, the third day of the war, the same day that Britain actually declared war on Poland, Hitler got in his private train and rode into Poland to watch his soldiers in action. And in charge of his security battalion was none other than Erwin Rommel. Erwin Rommel was Hitler's favorite general and absolutely worshipped Hitler. Meanwhile, Hitler's top generals are talking about their horrendous plans for the Polish population for basically murdering the clergy and the Jews and the intellectual elite. And therefore, the supposition that Rommel didn't know what a German conquest means is very difficult to maintain because he was right there in that inner circle at the beginning of the war. But the other train track in Poland that's really crucial for us to remember is there's a train going out of Warsaw, also heading east, but in this case to escape the German armies. This train leaves Warsaw on the 6th of September 1939. And on board that train is a man named Marian Yuryuski, who doesn't look like a military man at all. He's a 34-year-old mathematician, a man of the mind. And in 1932, Ryuski had received the impossible assignment, which was to figure out a way to break into the German Enigma cipher. Let me step back a moment and talk about Enigma. The big problem with the new German means of warfare called Blitzkrieg is that it depended on armored units moving very quickly. Those units had to communicate. They had to communicate by radio. But if you communicated by radio, somebody else could listen. So you had to have a way to encode or encipher what was being said. And most codes and ciphers could eventually be broken. I mean, you know the, the basic story here. Uh, if it's a cipher, so you look for the letter that's most common in the cipher, and that's E, right? If it's a code, you look for repeating words and you sort of match them up. And little by little, you can work out what these seemingly meaningless groups of letters or numbers mean. So the Germans had moved up to this new technology called Enigma, which was a machine that enciphered messages. And the way it did this is a set of wires ran through three wheels at the back of the machine. You typed a letter, pulse went from the keyboard through the wires in the three wheels and came out in a lamp board and lit up a different letter. And the wheels kept moving. And you took down the letters that showed up. Each time you pressed the key, the wheels moved. So the next letter you pressed would be enciphered in a different way. So if you typed E-E-E-E-E, it could come out as J-W-Q-K, just looked like gibberish. And the only way to make sense of it was to type it into another Enigma machine and it would come out in, in plain text. And you had to have the two Enigma machines set up the same way. But there were 
over 150 quintillion ways to set up an Enigma machine. And that was the easy number because the big number was the number of ways that you could wire an Enigma machine. And there's not a word for that, but it's a number that you write by writing five and then writing 92 zeros. That's how many different ways there are to set up the wires in an Enigma machine. So it's, to use a anachronistic modern expression, it's perfect end-to-end encryption. Nobody can break Enigma. That's the Germans' assumptions. They can send messages in this. An Enigma just weighs 15 pounds. You can send it in the command car with the general or the colonel. They can get their messages, right? Everything's perfect. Well, Ryuski then in his 20s is a master's student in mathematics. He gets this job of breaking Enigma. Nobody thinks it's possible. In the course of less than three months, he comes up with a set of equations that allows him to figure out the wiring of the Enigma machine. And then he two, and two assistants figure out how to figure out the settings. And this is the basis for breaking Enigma from that point onward. Except that when the war gets close, and the Germans are changing the settings every day. They have too much work. It's too difficult. And they're in contact with French intelligence. French intelligence invites the British. French and British cryptographers go to Warsaw. They meet with Ryuski and his assistants, and they learn the secret of how to work Enigma. They don't believe, that, by the way, that Ryuski has figured this out on his own. They're sure that Ryuski must have gotten a stolen Enigma machine because no human being can possibly figure this out, right? Years later, they will write in their memoirs, they must have gotten a stolen machine because no human being can figure this out. Next time you hear somebody telling you that some method of encryption is perfect and never can be figured out, think about Marion Ryuski and feel less secure about that message you just sent to your boss or your friend or to somebody else. So Ryuski escapes by train to eastern Poland and then to Romania, ends up in France, ends up advising Bletchley Park. All of Bletchley Park's work breaking Enigma is based on what Ryuski gave them. So that's the setup for the code breaking. And one final thing that happens that week is at Bletchley Park, this hideous mansion in the countryside between Cambridge and Oxford in England, with the beginning of the war, the initial crew is all moving in to start working on code breaking. Only a few of them actually working on Enigma because it was assumed that Enigma couldn't be broken. Most of them are working on other German and Italian codes. Code breakers where the war begins. Of course, Rommel doesn't know anything about this. None of the Germans know anything about this. They have perfect codes. Their codes cannot be broken. But in the course of the first year of the war, Bletchley Park starts breaking into Enigma. The second thing that happens that's really critical here in toward the end of the first year of the war is that in June of 1940, Mussolini, after a tremendous amount of dithering and indecision, finally decides he's going to go to war on Hitler's side. It's in the midst of the German conquest of France. Mussolini wants to get his little piece of France, but also he's sure by now that Britain is going to lose the war. And what he really wants is to reestablish the Roman Empire, which means conquering big parts of Africa. He already rules Libya and Ethiopia. He wants to capture the land in between that and more of the land around the Mediterranean, you know, a new Roman Empire. And just a year after when the war is a year old, September of 1940, the Italian army invades Egypt from Libya and thus begins the Desert War. Well, the Italians take a little bit of land in Egypt. The Italian general thinks that this whole idea is a disaster. He starts digging in after he's taken a little bit of land. He can, he can radio home to Rome. See, we've taken a little bit of land. Get off my back. And then something really amazing happens at this point, which is that even though Britain still sees itself under immediate threat of invasion 
after the fall of France, Churchill and the War Cabinet decide that they have to devote resources to defending Egypt, to holding on to the British stake in the Middle East. Why do they do that? Well, there's the Suez Canal, which is the pathway to India. There is the Iraqi oil fields. <laughs> there's a credible irony here, of course, which is that the Italians are sitting on Libya and they don't know that there's any oil underneath it. <laughs> but in those days, people didn't know that there was oil in Libya. It's the middle of the world. The Mediterranean is, in fact, the middle of the world and it's crucial strategic territory. And so the small British army in Egypt counterattacks and the Italians just fall apart and retreat deep into Libya. And at this point, at the end of 1940, the beginning of 1941, Hitler gets nervous. This is a repeating problem for him. He's depending on the Italians and they keep messing up. And he's got plans. Hitler has his plans to attack to the east. But he can't take the risk that Britain will attack Europe from the south, from Africa. So he says, I'll send my best general to Africa to put up a defensive line. And he sends Rommel. Rommel doesn't do defense. Or to put it differently, Rommel's philosophy is always that the best defense is a good offense. He goes on the attack. It looks like he's doing very, very well. He actually had an incredible advantage that people don't pay enough attention to, which is that the British had pulled out their best forces to defend Greece. Another spot that the Italians had invaded, fallen apart, and the Germans stepped in. So he's facing a very, very weak British force in Libya and advances. And this seesaw begins in North Africa. One side advances, the other side advances. They're fighting mostly in Libya. And at Bletchley Park, they're breaking German Air Force messages, but they're not yet getting into German Army messages. Each branch of the army had their own settings for Enigma, used it slightly differently. They hadn't gotten into the version of Enigma used in North Africa. Rommel goes far enough that he isolates Tobruk. There's the whole famous siege of Tobruk that goes on for months. Australian troops holding on to Tobruk, uh, even though it's surrounded by all but the sea. And in the spring of 1942, finally Rommel is ready to attack and he wants to take back the rest of Libya. What he really wants to do is keep advancing. He wants to make a name for himself and take the whole Middle East. And that's the point at which Bletchley Park finally breaks into North African Enigma and realizes, wow, they have this source, apparently in Cairo, that's just like telling them everything about us. Who is this source? We've got to stop this source. We've, we've set the scene here. We're looking at Cairo. Cairo is, you know, the skies are filled with smoke wafting over the River Nile. You've got soldiers ready to, to fight each other. Rommel is steaming forwards. You've got co-breakers at Bletchley desperately trying to unencrypt the messages that are being sent by the German military. And then you find out that Rommel has had this amazing source. Okay, so who, what, where, what is the source? Oh, you want me to give away the, the spoilers? I'm, you know, I, okay, look, first of all, the source shows up in two kinds of German messages. There's the army messages and the air force messages. The army people consistently refer to this source as the good source. The good source goes from being a description to being virtually a proper name. Sounds like an understatement, doesn't it? The good source. This is someone who's helping Rommel, you know, outflank and outmaneuver the British at every turn. But, you know, nice and understated military term, the good source. Right. In the Air Force messages, sometimes they just give the information without saying what it's from. Sometimes they say it's a particularly reliable source. 
one of the problems that Lexley Park has is, you know, why why does this source keep being called the good source here and the particularly reliable source there? Well, the clue to that I found was in the decrypted messages, which are still stored in the British National Archives. There were handwritten annotations on the decrypted Enigma messages that tell you which network they were sent in. The British codebreakers had all these color-based, and then they went over to the names of animals and birds for all the different networks that the Germans were using with Enigma. And from those annotations, which are often only the first letter or two of, of the name of the code, you can tell that good source is being used in, in all of the army ones. Now, I just want to tell you, this is a tremendous violation of code security. You don't do that. You only do that, in fact, if once again, you think your code is unbreakable. The, the Air Force was a little bit more careful. Sometimes they say secret service reports, sometimes they say particularly reliable source, but when you start lining up the messages, it's clear that they're getting the information from the same place. And they're getting all kinds of information. Sometimes they get map readings of exactly where British units are. They find out how many serviceable and out of commission tanks or airplanes the British have. I mean, imagine yourself as the general facing these people and you get this message that says, you know, they have this many hundred planes, but only this many hundred are usable. Or what actually happened at the beginning of 1942 before the British realized what was going on. But in these sources, the source says the British are about to send 250 warplanes to the Far East to fight the Japanese after Japan enters the war. Well, you know, this is gold. This is a commander's dream. Eric. A defending commander's nightmare. How do they know this stuff? And of course, there's all sorts of theories about it. Is it a spy? Is it several spies? Wait a minute. There's information being leaked from Washington as well. So maybe they have spies in both Cairo and Washington. Wait a minute. Here's a message dealing with the situation in Malta. Maybe they have a spy in Malta, right? Or did they break one of our codes? Are they reading our codes? Or Maybe it's somebody close to King Farouk of Egypt. We don't trust him. We know he's pro-Axis. Maybe somebody's leaking British information to the Egyptian court, and from there it's getting to the Germans. These are all the kinds of possibilities that are floating around. So they start to know that it's one source, a good source, um, because bizarrely the Germans in an arrogant way start to create patterns which is like you say the number one rule of encryption here is you don't start to use reoccurring patterns within your messages but how do they start to figure out or hone in where exactly that good source is based well the kind of the information they're getting definitely points to cairo because they'll have things like the british appreciation says that you know bizarre echo chamber right you're british you're reading a German message, which is a British appreciation of what the British in Cairo expect that the Germans will do. It's like this ping pong game of information and intelligence. You want me to give spoilers? I want you to give spoilers, yeah. You can't leave us on tenterhooks any longer. Well, the next thing that happens is they get this message early June. Two messages they get. One refers to British training. And it says, this training is not very good according to American ideas. Oops, wait a minute. What are American ideas doing here? Okay. Second thing is one of the messages has to do with faulty repairs on American warplanes being supplied to the Royal Air Force in Egypt. And 
when they check with the American small supply team in Cairo, they learn that this message fairly closely matches a message that was sent from Washington to Cairo saying, we've been hearing these complaints that the British are not you know, working with our technicians. So you've got two different indicators that the source is actually American. Now, you're thinking, wait a minute, this is early 1942. The Americans have only entered the war in December of 1941, right? Outside of the supply mission and a little attache's office on a street in the luxurious neighborhood of Cairo, they, they don't have a military presence in Egypt. So what are the Americans doing here? Well, I just told you, they have a supply mission and they have a military attache's office. And then the question that has to be figured out, is there a traitor? in one of these American offices? Is one of the American officers or code clerks or secretaries or somebody like that actually in the employ of the Germans? Or has an American code been broken? I wanna step back for a moment and tell you something that for me was a fascinating part of this story. Because the dedication to this book is in memory of forgotten heroes. And part of that is simply that People have forgotten about the battles in the desert and how important they were to the war and, and the soldiers who fell there and, you know, your granddad's buddies, right, who were heroes. But part of it is also that there were all these people who worked on the codes who could never talk about this for the rest of their lives. And so I had to discover who the people were who were working on this. Well, two names popped up in the British archives. One of them was somebody named Russell Dudley Smith, who was a Navy paymaster officer. He was somebody who basically a ship's accountant who as a hobby had broken codes and, and ended up at Bletchley Park as being in charge of looking for access breaks in allied codes. But he had a lot of other jobs, so he was too busy to do that. So in the spring of 1942, they promoted this young woman whose name was Margaret Story. We're going to tell the story of Margaret's story now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right. So Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history we've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries this seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world as far as we can tell anywhere in the world we've got the big names it's one of these great things pompeii it's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction we've got the big topics the man destroys seven legions in a day no one in history has done that subscribe to the ancients from history hit wherever you get your podcast from Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. So Margaret's story was hired by Bletchley Park in 1940 as an untrained clerk. Lowest pay grade you could have there. Now, what that also meant is she didn't know till she got there what her job was going to be, because when you got hired by GCHQ, by Bletchley Park, they never told you. You couldn't tell anybody what they were going to do. You say, we have some important work for you that will help the war effort. So she shows up there and she gets this job. First, she's a clerk, and then they put her to work in a, in a certain medium-level job that's involved with breaking Enigma. But she's brilliant. Uh, the records tell nothing about her. The records only have the papers in the archives, which remained secret for so many years, only have the reports that she prepared. They don't say who she was or what she was, except for a couple of hiring documents that tell about her rank. But I spent many months looking for somebody who knew Margaret's story. And in the end, I found several people who are now very old. Well, at least one of them has passed away since I talked to her. And as young people, they knew Margaret when she was a little bit older and they could tell me about her. And what they told me was that she was an incredibly brilliant human being. She was very intelligent. She had formidable intelligence. She had daunting intelligence. She remembered everything she heard. She had a rap trap of a mind. She spoke nine languages. She was very, very, very shy. She was self-effacing. She always wore dark clothes, right? And she was always smoking. And somebody noticed that this young woman was really, really smart and gifted and knew all these languages. And they put her to work, deciphered Enigma messages, looking for signs of Axis intelligence. And so it was her job to look at these messages and to figure out what's going on. So she gets these messages, you know, American training, you know, and she says, well, maybe it's a spy. And then they finally come to the conclusion that it's a code. And they don't know how the American code has been broken, but there's a secret channel to the American code breakers in Washington. And they say, hey, one of your codes is being broken. Now, the first American message back is actually sort of rude because it says, what kind of code is being broken? Is it this kind of code or is that? Well, what that assumes is you, the Englishman, are breaking the code, right? Because if you see a message, just the text of a message, you don't know what kind of code it was sent in. So there's a sort of rude implication there that you're reading our codes, not just the Germans, which had been true before America entered the war, that GCHQ had broken one or two American codes. But 
Churchill made a formal commitment to Roosevelt when America entered the war that Britain would no longer break American codes. And I have messages confirming that this was the case. It's, you know, intercept station out somewhere writes to GCHQ and says, we've got American traffic. You know, do you want it to decode it? And the message comes back and says, no, we do not break American traffic. For the Americans to make this implication that Britain is reading America's codes, it's not very diplomatic. So, of course, the British write back and say, we don't know what kind of code it is. I can tell you what the information is. It matches these messages. And one of those messages is astounding in itself. There's a whole subplot inside this message because what this message says is on the night of 12th to 13th, British commandos are going to strike German airfields in Libya and Crete. This is going through like a day or two before that. This is announcing upcoming attacks, forewarning of attacks. And what was going on was that uh, the island of Malta, which is this tiny island in the middle of the Mediterranean, which served essentially as a stationary aircraft carrier for the RAF, that was the best place to attack Italian convoys carrying supplies across the Mediterranean. It was besieged. Britain had to get a convoy there. It was being attacked by German planes. So they said, let's send out the commandos. They'll blow up the German planes on the ground, and then our convoy will be able to get through, Right. And here's a message warning of these commando raids. And they send the text of this message to Washington. And it matches a coded message from the military attache in Cairo to Washington. So that's it. Case closed, right? But meanwhile, all across Libya, German airfield commanders are getting these warnings. Your base is going to be attacked. And the raiders came in. And they suffered serious losses and very few planes were destroyed. And the convoy went out and it was severely attacked and they had to turn around and retreat to Alexandria and did not get through. So this one message warns the Germans of the coming attack, foils the convoy to Malta and lets Britain know exactly what the source is in Cairo. Wow. I mean... If you could write a book about just that, it ties up so many different threads of the war, doesn't it? It's just like there's so much here. It's so it's amazing. One of those raiding groups was something called the Special Interrogation Group, which, despite its name, was a commando unit. And that commando unit consisted of German speaking Jews from Palestine, young Jewish men who had come to Palestine to escape Nazi Germany and were recruited by the British Army to join a commando group where these Jewish refugees, native-speaking German Jewish refugees, were trained to walk, talk, fight, salute, and sing like Nazi soldiers so that they could go behind the lines and attack German bases. And one of those squads was wiped out in this commando raid. All of that training, all of that bravery, all of that effort wiped out by a leak in the attache's office. Right. Except now the question is, where does the leak come from? How are the Germans reading this? How do the Germans know this? You know, this question is still open. Is it a spy or is it a broken code? So the British are hopping mad. The British, you know, this tiny group of people, I mean, like, you and I sitting here are like a third of the number of people who, who actually know that this is going on, right? 
You've got to stop this. They're sending these desperate messages to Washington. You've got to stop this. Change the code to Cairo. And if you change the code and the messages keep going, we'll know it's a traitor. And if they stop, then we'll know it's a code. Well, nothing happens. The messages keep coming. In fact, Rommel takes to Brooke. The attache's office in Cairo sends a message that morning to Washington that Tobruk has fallen. They're typed out on these little pink slips. Somebody comes running into Roosevelt's office with a pink slip saying that Tobruk has fallen. Who's sitting with Roosevelt in that moment? Winston Churchill, who has just arrived in Washington. So Churchill learns of the fall of Tobruk from the telegram from the attache's office in Cairo. The same messages that are being read by the Germans. Okay, like everybody's reading <laughs> the same stuff. And then from the attache's office comes a message that says, you know, basically the British have fallen apart. If Rama wants to take the Nile Delta, this is his moment. Now, Rama is supposed to stop at the Egyptian border because the next move on the Axis drawing board was to launch an attack on Malta. But Rama gets this message. Rama never thought very highly of orders from above anyway, and he never thought very highly above of stopping. And he also thought very, very little about his supply lines. That was, I would call it his Achilles heel, but a heel is too small to express how much of a flaw this was in, in Rommel's thinking. He gets this message, you know, the best source in the world has told him this is the moment to take the Nile. So he rushes into Egypt. And for this strategy to succeed, basically what he has to do is he's got to get, first of all, to Alexandria. So he has a port where he can get supplies without them being trucked across the desert, right? And really, he has to get beyond there all the way to Palestine because that's, Palestine is full of RAF bases. And those bases are where planes take off to attack that shipping. So think of him as a guy playing cards, right? He's, he's playing, you know, blackjack. He's got to take the whole pot, but he's been told that the next card will be the card he needs. So he's completely confident, right? And, you know, there's this fevered traffic between Cairo and London and, and Washington about stop the code, stop the code. Well, the code stops. This is the critical thing. The code stops somewhere on the 24th or the 25th of June 1942. That's when the messages stop. The Germans aren't completely sure it stopped until the 29th, but the last messages that come through are from the 24th or the 25th of June, probably the 25th of June. Why is that so critical? because the British, all the messages up to then said that the British were going to mount their final defense of Egypt, this place called Mersa Matruh, on the shore of Egypt. And on the 25th of June, General Claude Auchinleck, the commander of the Middle East, the officer in command of the Middle East command of the British army, flies out to Mersa Matruh, meets General Ritchie, who's in command of the 8th Army, relieves him of his command, takes over in the field, and decides that we're going to retreat further to this place called El Alamein, which is a better place to defend. It's a place where there are cliffs on one side and sea on the other, so the, the German army can't go around us in the desert. And that message never reaches Rommel. Rommel fights a battle with a small British force that stayed at Mersamatruch. He thinks he's done with British resistance that all, you know, he, he hears, he's got a little bit of information that there's a British force at El Alamein, but his own decoded cables show that he thought that was mopping up. He did not expect the full strength of the Eighth Army to be there. 
In fact, his medical officer is already issuing commands about what to do when you get to Alexandria. Don't drink the water. Don't buy ice cream on the street. They're like 100% completely confident. They're going to be in Alexandria, right? And they get to El Alamein, and he plunges forward, and they're sitting right on his route. He has no idea that it's going to be there as a South African division that stops that part of his army cold. And it turns into a static or nearly static battle of attrition there. And Rommel never breaks through because at that incredibly critical moment, the intelligence has been stopped. And this is something that I only was able to put together by comparing the Italian and the German and the, and the British and the American messages, which hadn't been clear before, is that Rommel's source stopped at the precise moment that meant that he did not get warning that the real defense was going to be at El Alamein. So your grandfather sitting at El Alamein had one advantage that he did not even know about, which was, you know, you hear about surprise attacks. This was a surprise defense. And Margaret Story sitting back at Bletchley as well. Oh, so Margaret Story <laughs> sitting back at Bletchley is now Miss Story, as she's always referred to in the, you know, very polite upper class British uh, documents of the time. And I... I'm, something else in parentheses here. I'm reading this stuff in the British archives. And you have to understand that, okay, I'm I'm from Jerusalem. My other language is Hebrew. And the word mystori in Hebrew means mysterious. So it's as if the documents are referring, saying to me over and over again, mysterious says that, right? <laughs> and what she's watching for now is silence, is that the good source has vanished. And in fact, the good source has vanished. The good source has vanished, and the British are breaking into another Enigma network every day. They've got incredible intelligence from Rommel's forces. They've got incredible intelligence on the Italian naval supplies coming across the Mediterranean. The entire balance of the secret war, of the War of Shadows, has shifted to the British favor precisely as the fighting begins at El Alamein. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to be an easy battle. It's a horrendous battle, and many, many, many men fell there. And you can go to El Alamein and see their graves. And I did. And it's, you know, it's this spot in the desert. It's terrifically desolate terrain. And there's this graveyard of British soldiers, and they had to fight to hold that line. But they were able to hold that line. And a key reason that they were able to hold that line is what was happening in secret, what they would never know about themselves. And this wasn't just pivotal for the Shadow War. This is pivotal for the outcome of the entire war, really. Because like you say, if Rommel, he's not going to buy the ice cream on the streets, but they're going to push on through and they're going to have a, a great old time into Alexandria, into Palestine. They're going to take Malta uh, and all of their woes are going to be solved. And, you know, this does and, shut off Suez. It shuts off everything. Right. And... At this exact moment, the Germans and the Japanese are talking about one of their biggest problems, which is how can we connect to each other? Well, how do you connect to each other if Rommel manages to push through the Middle East all the way to, uh, you know, to the Persian Gulf? Then Japanese ships can come around through the Indian Ocean and, and meet up with them. That's something that's an advantage that the allies had through the war, that they were able to trade supplies, trade resources that Germany and Japan never had. Right. They were fighting on the same side, but they could not exchange forces. Germany could not get rubber from occupied Malaysia. So 
the strategic importance of taking the Middle East was incredible. And one more factor, the SS had already assigned an Einsatzkommando, a mobile murder squad to Rommel's army with the purpose of mass murder of the Jews of first of Egypt and then of Palestine and the rest of the Middle East. So that was another implication of Rommel's potential breakthrough was extending the Holocaust throughout the Middle East. And all of that was stopped because the Eighth Army drew a line in the sand at El Alamein, and that was made possible by the intelligence breakthrough. But hang on, I thought Rommel had always said that this was a, a war without hate. Right. Well, as long as you treat the people who lived in Africa as invisible, then it's only a war between armies. If you act as if nobody lived there, then you can act as if the war is the equivalent of a naval war, you know, just forces meeting in empty territory. But of course, that's nonsense. People lived there. People lived in Libya. Benghazi changed hands five times. Five times the, the city of Benghazi changed hands between the Axis and the British. The town of Tobruk was bombed into smithereens. There were people living in those places. In eastern Libya, at the beginning of 1942, the Italians had started trucking the Jews of eastern Libya to concentration camps. Rommel himself supported drastic retaliation methods against Arabs in Libya who collaborated or were alleged to have collaborated with the British. This is a war without hate. The people who were living in Africa were subjected to the fury of World War II twice over, because not only were they civilians being persecuted, abused by Axis uh, rulers, but they were also colonials, which made them in the eyes of the Germans and the Italians even less human. So Rommel's line of the war without hate is just nonsense. And it makes you completely rethink the idea of the term the desert war as well, doesn't it? Because by saying that term, you're kind of completely smothering over the bombings of the people of Tobruk or the occupations of Benghazi and, and all the other cities that were bombed during this time and the civilians that were killed and the civilizations and societies that were there. Exactly. It's a way of describing the battle that implies simply not seeing the people who live there. And of course, the threat to the much larger population of, of Egypt and, and the whole fertile Middle East, which is where the war would have moved next, if not for the successful defense of El Alamein. Although I will say that from my interviews with veterans and from my granddad's own memoirs, there's a lot of desert as well. Oh, a lot of sand. incredibly desolate territory, but along the coast in Libya, there's green areas that were populated. And of course, under threat was the entire population of Egypt in the Middle East. And then after El Alamein, when first Alkenlech's army stopped the Germans and the Italians, and then Montgomery took over and pushed them back. So the Germans retreated all the way to Tunisia. And Tunisia was another country with a significant population, and they were subjected to the travails of the German occupation. So, yes, lots and lots of this fighting was taking place in this incredibly desolate desert. But that doesn't mean that there weren't civilians there who were affected by it. Now, Gershom, I know there's so, so much more to this story and there's so many layers. And you've not even mentioned, you know, probably half of the 
fascinating twists and turns of your research in this. So where can people read more? In the book, The War of Shadows, Codebreakers, Spies, and the Secret Struggle to Drive the Nazis from the Middle East, which is available from all the usual online places and is also available in ebook and on audio. Perfect. Gershom, we're going to get you back on sometime very soon. That was fantastic. You're brilliant. The book's brilliant. You're always welcome. Thank you so much for having me. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.